welcome to the Sociology and Animals podcast series. In this program, we speak with folks specializing in the sociological study of animals and society in an effort to document and explore how research in our field is applied in the real lives and careers of sociologists. My name is Dr. Corey Wren. I'm currently chair of the Animals and Society section of the American Sociological Association. But this podcast is coming to you from Canterbury, England, where I have been living since 2019 after accepting a position as lecturer in sociology with the University of Kent. Here in the UK, I am a member of the Animal Human Studies Group of the British Sociological Association, as well as the Vegan Society's Research Advisory Committee. In addition to teaching environmental politics, social movements, and animals and society at the University of Kent, I'm also co-director of the Center for the Study of Social and Political Movements and a member of the psychology department's Shark Lab, which stands for the Study of Human-Animal Relations at Kent. As you can see, I have had the great privilege to develop my career around various facets of animal studies, but it hasn't been easy. Our field is growing, but it is still small and doesn't always elicit support from colleagues, prospective employers, editors and reviewers, grant funders, and so on. My aim with this podcast is to challenge this institutional discrimination and provide some insider insights into making a career out of animal studies. Not that long ago, the idea of a career in animal studies would have seemed impossible, if not outlandish. Today, there are considerably more opportunities, but a lot of mystery and ignorance remains about how to go about pursuing and succeeding in this line of work. Especially with academia being so competitive and prestige-oriented, I think a lot of folks are hesitant to discuss the nuts and bolts of their career making. It is my aim that this podcast will serve as a sort of informal virtual mentorship for folks interested in learning more about the sociological pursuit of animal studies. So without further ado, let's meet today's guest. All right, I am pleased to have with me today Trent Grassian. Trent, what's up? Hello, Corey. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, so I am a researcher who's, you know, very passionate about animals. Uh, also really interested in lots of different social justice issues. So yeah, I'm really excited to be here and talk about talk about all that. Yay, wonderful. <laughs> Can you summarize your research interests and tell us how did you find your way into the animal world? Yeah, uh, it's a bit of a funny story. So I used to be a special education teacher in the U.S. Um, I've always, like I said, I've been passionate about social social justice, human rights. I've always cared about animals, but I didn't fully make the connection, you could say. Um, and while I was doing my master's in Exeter, which is in the southwest England, I uh, uh, during that time I became vegan. I was becoming really passionate about animal issues. And I went to an event where they were showing, uh, funnily enough, the documentary Cowspiracy. And this got me thinking really about you know, all this stuff we don't know. And I was kind of, my mind was blown. I just started doing all this research. And in a very last minute March decision, I decided I was going to do a PhD because I was like, someone needs to do more research on this. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so basically I found like, you know, the one scholarship that was still going at this point applied and was able to to do a PhD and it was brilliant. Um, yes, it, it was just a dream come true to be able to really get into to researching um, in the in the area of animals and and trying to you know do anything I can to help 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 all the animals of the world I guess. I did not know this. This is pretty cool. <laughs> I, I definitely want to interject here and say for listeners, like uh, I'm also living in the UK, 
and maybe you know the UK is a little bit more conducive on the research side for animal topics. So if you're in the US and you're dreaming of traveling the world, <laughs> perhaps this is a way to do it. Um, so Trent, what about sociology do you find conducive to animal studies? Yeah, so uh, my, my fields have been kind of uh, around sociology, but my re my PhD ended up being very linked to sociology. Both of my research, both of my, um, all three of my advisors actually were in sociology. Um, my background's actually, my, my bachelor's was feminist and gender studies. My master's was public administration and my PhD was social policy. But I just find all of the, you know, these fields in social science is really conducive because it's really about understanding humans. And when we're studying animals, um, it's so interesting to understand more about our relationship to animals and, and as humans and as culture and as individuals. So I looked at, you know, the individual level. So I looked at behavior change and I also looked kind of more at the broader level. So there's a really interesting field in sociology called like social consumption theory. So people like Mary Douglas, which are really, really interesting. Um, so I find that fascinating, whereas I have friends who have PhDs in like animal behavior, which I'm a little bit jealous because it meant they got to do things like hang out with cows, mm. um, which sounds really fun. Uh, but, you know, the science, the science side of things has never been, I'd say, my, my strength. I like maths and things, but I but I really enjoy kind of understanding humans and I love animals. So it's kind of a great connection. And there's so many different areas. What's great about it is there's so many different kind of subfields within sociology, social policy, anthropology, et cetera, where you can kind of find a niche and, and look into that. And you could be the first one to do it, you know, because there's a lot there that people I think haven't actually used. Um, so I think that's something that's really interesting. That I would love to see people kind of look more into how these things can be applied to to our relationships with animals. Yeah, I think that's actually a very good piece of advice you have there. Um, even if you're, let's say you're Googling online and you're thinking about doing a degree in this and you really don't see anything in the field or the subfield you're interested in, well, maybe that's your invitation to start it. Because a lot of these uh, programs are really uh, new to this and really could use a fresh set of eyes on these types of things. And I also want to clarify to people listening, Trent actually went to the University of Kent, which is where I work now. And in our school, we're the school of, which actually we are changing now. We've added some, the law department in, but we're uh. the school, yeah, the law is joining us. So the <laughs> school of sociology, social research, social policy, so, such a long name. But anyway, so his program, um, social policy is kind of within the same building as sociology. And we all kind of work with each other and go to the same meetings and whatnot. So maybe you want to clarify, Trent, just really quickly um, for those, because one of my aims with this podcast is not just to say you must strictly do sociology and only sociology, <laughs> but to clarify that sociology is a very broad program that, or discipline that can train you and prepare you for lots of other things and then vice versa. So can you just really quickly tell me how you would explain the difference between sociology and social policy? Yeah, that's a good question. I think social policy um, kind of, yeah, directly links to sociology and then it's really understanding how the social world connects to policy in terms of creating policy, understanding policy, and understanding policy implications. So to give you an example, so for my PhD, I actually looked at campaigns that promoted meat reduction and veganism and I tried to understand their participants over a year, how their diets changed, what their barriers, motives for dietary change were. So it was almost cl more closely linked to sociology, you could say, than social policy, because my 
argument was really that, you know, we're not in a time when, when politicians really seem to be interested in this. But mm -hmm. if we can understand what's happening on the ground with these campaigns and can understand how we can change people's behavior on a societal level and an individual level, then hopefully that can lead to us changing policy one day. So it's kind of looking at the links between those two, I'd say, um, but it's very broad. And I think that's what's really interesting is, yeah, if you go within the, the sociology field or the, the social sciences, there are so many links between these kind of little subsets mm -hmm. um, where you can you know, do what you want with it. So with my research, when I started, I thought I was going to be doing something much more policy oriented. So I thought, you know, I went to actually went to the EU, I interviewed several um, ministers and other folks there. And um, by doing that, that's when I really, you know, was culminating all my thinking and reading and just thinking this isn't going to go anywhere. I can't convince them to do anything <laughs> right now. <laughs> so it'll be a waste of my time. Um, but it was great that it's kind of the flexibility and especially, you know, as you know, I'm sure with the PhD, what you end up starting with is often so far from what you end up doing. Yes. So I appreciate that that flexibility. And as you're kind of reading and getting into it, you start to hear different ideas, see what actually is out there in terms of the research, because that can really inform your opinion as well. Um, but yeah, I guess if, if the, hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, no, that's actually, I'm learning quite a lot about you. Oh, uh, <laughs> that's actually pretty exciting, like you and investigating. Yeah. <laughs> what you didn't mention about your study, which by the way, uh, I really recommend folks pick this up and it's online for free to view, right? We can link to it. Mm -hmm. um, but what you did was you actually looked at go vegan or go veg pledges that were different organizations were using. And, and I can easily imagine how like a, a government body might pick up a program like that and find research that you've done useful. So it's really not that far away from like your classic social policy stuff. Um, let's bounce to the next question and actually you may have mentioned this when you're talking about that consumption theory, but um, with regards to animal studies, if you could recommend like one sociological concept or one social policy concept or theory or theorist or even a publication, what would it be? Am I allowed to do more than one or do I have to do only one? <laughs> be you. <laughs> oh, good, great, because <laughs> I couldn't pick, because I have two. I hope that's okay. Um, so my first one is what I ended up using in my research, which is called the behavior change wheel. And there's a lot of links between behavior change, sociology. And I love this. It's by Mitchie, and it's a really fascinating concept that's being used by a lot of nonprofits that really links um, barriers to, to change, trying to understand essentially what it is that causes people to change their behavior and then links that directly to types of interventions. So thinking about what campaigns can actually do about it and then links that to policy. So I think for anyone who's in an, who's actually looking to do research that's actually going to be useful to the world, I love this framework because it really helps them that way. So that's one. And on the second one is, of course, I think for when we study animals, we have to understand humans. So I think the field of intersectionality is really important. Um, there's many caveats to that because it's kind of branched off in many different directions and people are taking it in directions that I think are more about sometimes like fighting than actually about trying to understand what it means. Mm. So I think the, the, the intersectionality field that's more about just continually growing and understanding the complications um, in how these things interact is really interesting. So one book um, that my friend actually recommended to me a while ago and I've, I found really good as a kind of starting point for the human animal side of things is Animal Rights, Human Rights by David, 
don't hate Francis Knight. David Nybert. David there we go. You know, yes. yeah. I found that so, I mean, it's a kind of old book, but I think it's really oh, so interesting good. in just laying out some of these things in a way that really helps you see, oh, those really do connect. Because I think sometimes, you know, with intersectionality, it seems very abstract. We yeah. don't fully understand it. But I think he really laid out some great kind of examples. So I think it's a great... I think it's a great book for people to just kind of start thinking about how the human side of things and animal side of things interact. Actually, so, use that yeah. as a textbook when I teach animals. Oh, perfect! Yeah. There we go. Uh, you know, a little word word of warning though. There's some graphic stuff that he definitely. documents in there where you got to. For me, I had to skim. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's yeah. a real deal. Um, so maybe then I'll ask you because the David Niver book is a little bit older. Intersectionality in the animal rights movement and vegan studies is now coming into its own. Do you see any new developments in sociology or in animal studies that you think are interesting, worth noting? Um, yeah, no, definitely. I'm not as up to date because I'm currently working in an education nonprofit and do stuff around like impact assessment uh, mostly. So um, I haven't been as up to date in research and I've been working on my own papers and stuff. But I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that's been coming out um, around many different elements of in I think I think the thing that I'm I'm enjoying is the stuff that's coming out I guess not necessarily um, in the academic journals so people like Christopher Sebastian who are who are talking about Black Lives Matter stuff right now and, and just you know I think he's so good at just making a point in like three almost tweets and you're like oh yeah that could be an <laughs> academic thesis that makes perfect sense <laughs> so I think he's a great person to to kind of follow right now um, and you know, even though he's he's outside of academia, he's very involved in these things. And I know he teaches a course at Columbia, I think. Um, so I think he's a great person to look to for, for a lot of the things he's talking about and trying to understand kind of the role of this. Because I know there was um, some issues with one group posting things that were really uh, targeting the Black Lives Matter protesters in terms of how they were treating animals. Um, and it was quite insensitive and the way he responded to it was just absolutely perfect. Mm. So yeah, I think he's always a good one to look out for. I'm gonna <laughs> second that, I yeah. think everything. So yeah, it's one of the things I love about the push for intersectionality in really just theory and practice in the animal rights movement is that we're getting folks now who are getting platform who aren't necessarily the old fuddy-duddy philosophy professor from 1982, you know what I mean? Yeah. We now have like people from different um, bodies of knowledge and they have different ways of explaining things and, and it, ah, I, if anyone is like just not trying to be reading some theory book and really just wants to jump into these ideas check him out on YouTube or on Facebook Twitter uh, he's really such an, engage, an engaging speaker too he's really really yeah. funny yeah he, really, he really is <laughs> okay so I'm getting like fangirling over here okay, uh, that's great <laughs> <laughs> so how about this this is okay. This is really why I decided to push forward with this podcast is because I get a lot of emails, and we were talking about how you know you as well. Um, emails from folks who are interested, like if I want to get into this, if I want to professionally pursue um, like critical animal studies, the society and animal stuff, and it, it can seem very difficult to navigate that path because we still live in a society that doesn't necessarily take animal stuff seriously. So. What advice would you give? Because you have had a very interesting career path. <laughs> yeah, definitely non-conventional. But I think that's the main 
thing here, I guess, is that with animal studies, you don't have to be studying animal studies, you know? So none of my degrees had anything to do with animals. And for my PhD, it was really about figuring out how to kind of sell it um, to people who didn't necessarily care about these issues. And it was really interesting because my advisors were all meat eaters. None had any history in doing any research around this area. But I think I was just kind of able to sell it as an interesting research concept and one that people would be interested in right now. So very topical. And I think it's so easy to show that it's topical right now. There's always things going on. It's getting increasing interest in this. Um, and especially if you have this kind of intersectional lens, that even more so, you know, and figuring out really, I think it's kind of like a multi-stage process. So it's like finding the scholarships if you're looking for that um, and thinking about the different potential fields you could go into and then finding the people whose research interests could some way overlap with yours. So for instance, when I started, I was really interested in the field of risk. And one of my advisors, my main supervisor, he um, his research was about risk involving, I think, e-cigarettes. And I was able to kind of link that into the risk around meat consumption. And I guess I did it well enough that he replied and, and was interested in working with me. So I think it's about kind of being creative and, and um, you know, finding also reaching out to allies, people who have done PhDs. So I had two friends who'd recently finished their PhDs and both told me, don't ever do a PhD, why are you doing this? Uh, and I think most people who do PhDs will tell you the same thing. <laughs> but yeah, so like, you know, I'm always happy to, to chat with people and I'm sure other people are. So if you come across a paper you're interested in, you can always like look up the author and email them. Um, but I think definitely being creative, like it's great to have advisors who are on the same side as you. But in some ways it really benefited me not having that because yeah. they would say things that really shocked me. And then it kind of helped me realize, oh yeah, like I, I forgot that people think that um, yeah. about things like fish. You know, I just remember having a conversation about why people were continuing to eat more fish. And that was a real big part of it. And the way that they they talked about it made it make more sense <laughs> almost because it was, it was normal to them. Now also jumping in there for folks who I think it's worth clarifying that if if you're in the U.S. and you're thinking about grad school in the U.S., it's much different from grad school in the U.K. So, for instance, the average time it takes to get a Ph.D. in the social sciences in the U.S. is like eight years. But here in the U.K., you, you're expected to get in and out like three years average and then max if you're dragging, then you'll be four years. So it's much different. And also here it's not the same as you just don't apply to any old grad school. You have to find someone who's willing to work with you before you even apply. Am I correct in that? Yep. Yeah. So it's a little bit different. And you're also expected to find someone who's going to support you financially. Whereas in the United States, like for instance, when I got my PhD, I was funded for three years and then the, the remaining five years I had okay. to pay myself. <laughs> Ended up know. like on food stamps and living with my mom and all this kind of mess. So if you're thinking about, um, going into academia in this way and you're thinking, oh, PhD, I don't know if I want to take on all that money or all that time. Maybe you want to think about uh, the UK. I, that said, we're dealing with Brexit, so. <laughs> well, yeah, I, one thing I thought when I came here actually was I thought, oh, I guess I have to go to the UK because I my other language, my other languages are terrible. Thank you so much, U.S. education. But I know people who've done PhDs actually in other parts of Europe, and they're generally also in English. And actually, the funding's even better. <laughs> so that's also something to consider. 
Um, and it tends to be a bit longer, but I think there's a lot more support during that time. So I know someone who was going to do one, she had, I mean, it was finan the financial support she had was fantastic. She didn't have to do any teaching. Um, and she was getting, you know, really good, really good financial support through her scholarship. And I think it was like four or five years of funding, whereas, yeah, mine was three years. And if you go over, then you just have to pay, which I was very insistent on not doing. <laughs> So this but is yeah. good. I wanted to like highlight that really quick because when yeah. I was in grad school, I didn't know, and it didn't even occur to me that this would be a possibility to go overseas to study. Yeah. So, it, so I, I really do recommend folks look into it if they are even. I mean, there's advantages, there's disadvantages. I mean, you're way from long way from home, but definitely it costs a lot of money to get the visa and all that. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely expensive, but it's. I yeah, I just thought it was so worth it, especially in terms of I would not have been motivated to do three years was plenty. I didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> I can imagine doing longer. Yeah, I know. Yeah, hats off to you. I don't know how you've done it. <laughs> All right, this has been actually we've gone in some interesting. Yeah. This, this is great. I just, oh, it's wonderful. Okay, so let's wrap this up because we don't, don't want to bore people to tears with our That's reminiscing. Good. Can you um, just very quickly? We've mentioned a whole lot of good stuff in this mm. this episode, but where can we learn more about you and your amazing self and oh, your work? Sure. So I have a, a blog called For Us All. So F O R U S A L L site s i t e dot wordpress dot com. So that's For Us All site dot wordpress dot com. Um, you can also just Google me and I'll show up. But I have a free report about my research there, and I I write blogs. On there, I also have a book chapter in the book Environmental Nutrition by Joan Sabate, and I do have an article that should be coming out soon in Appetite about my research. So I'm very excited about that because um, it's going to, yeah, be the first really um, article to look. I think because this, since this ended up being kind of the largest study of its kind, to really look at how these campaigns actually change people's diets over time. And the bonus is that in my PhD, I only talked about the first six months. Um, whereas in this article, I talk about the full year of data. So I'm looking forward to sharing that. <laughs> I also, okay, this is, I'm fangirling now, but this, I like your research as well, because it definitely is, I would say a little bit more objective, less biased, because a lot of that type of research is actually conducted by the nonprofits themselves. Right, yeah. They have a little bit of an incentive to say, oh, look how great and wonderful. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, that was one of the real challenges here was was um, trying to keep them on side, even when I was saying critical things. And I think I was able to do it because I still have good relationships with them. So that's good. <laughs> that's actually yeah. really good. Yeah. I, I'm not so good at those stuff. So. Uh, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Trent, thanks so much. Here in the UK, it is a wonderful, sunny, hot, dare I say, uh, afternoon. And it was really wonderful to speak with you. And thanks so much for supporting the podcast. Oh, thanks, Corey. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Sociology and Animals. I hope you found it helpful and informative. If you want to learn more about the sociological study of society and animals, you can check out the website of the Animals and Society section of the American Sociological Association or my own website at coreyleebrin.com. You can also check out the International Association for Vegan Sociologists, and the website for that is vegansociology.com. Feedback and suggestions can be submitted to myself at coreyrenn at gmail.com. That's C-O-R-E-Y dot W-R-E-N-N at gmail.com. If you liked this episode, be sure to share this series with others. 
The music for this podcast was provided by Ode to Sleep, a band local to where I live here in East Kent, England. Ode to Sleep explores various topics with their music, including human and animal rights, environmental issues, equality, and mental health. Their debut EP will be released in September 2020 through Is No I in Team Records. Their single featured here is called Captive Audience and is available now on all streaming platforms. Until next time, this is Dr. Corey Wren signing off. All the best.